0: I'm glad that you're back. I want us to kind of feel like we're participating a little bit more. Hopefully you were belting it out. Um, This is, I just want you to know during the worship, that was the first time I ever sang a solo in church. And uh, um, I got crickets in reply. But anyway, um, I hope that you are participating. And just a real simple way that we've been trying to participate over the last year or so is using the chat feature. So draw closer, get closer to your computer and Um, Just a real simple question, which professional sport has the biggest home field advantage? So when you think of the professional sports, soccer, football, basketball, baseball, hockey, uh, curling, I don't know if that's a professional sport, but anyway, what professional sport do you think has the biggest home field advantage? Let's see what we got here. Jane said Jesus. That's always the right answer on a Sunday morning. Good. Uh, Jamie says basketball. We've got, uh, got a few basketballs. Tom says baseball. Um, the Ezels say mountain biking. OK, all right. Um, baseball, baking. OK. I don't know if that's a misspelling, but that's a great sport. Um, uh, let's see. <laughs> I cannot understand the significance of sports. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty, Jen. I appreciate that so i um, I did a little bit of of research on the internet, which always proves to be nothing but true information and the uh, The professional sport that um, affords a team the best home field advantage is actually in the NFL you are uh, 10% or more likely to win a home a game just because you're playing at home. So uh, kind of tagged on to that maybe a part b, uh, b which NFL team is known for having the biggest home field advantage? How would you answer that? Hmm? Green Bay that was that would have been my guess, yeah. Still is my guess. Crickets, Jesus again, yes. So I'll just go ahead and uh, Denver, that could be really good. I mean, it's due to the uh, altitude, that could be a tough one. Um, deflate gate. I guess you mean uh, the Patriots. Now from what I was reading, uh, the NFL team that's known for having the biggest home field advantage are the Seahawks. And they attribute that to their crowd. They are a very, very loud and boisterous A crowd making it difficult for the for the visiting team. So you can agree or disagree with with that. um, Kind of beside the point. Um, What I wanted to say, I want to share uh, something that I. This statistic is probably not going to shock any of us, Uh, but it's just to make us aware of this is the reality of the world that we live in. Um, There, uh, from 19 from the mid 1930s to the end of the 20th century. So uh, right up there, up up until the year 2000, church membership in the United States remained relatively constant. And it hovered right about 70%, 70% of people in the United States claimed to be members of a church. And then something happened. And over the past two decades, that number has dropped To less than 50%, which is the sharpest recorded decline of church membership and church attendance in American history, and um, in fact, that we are living now in a day for the first time in our nation's history where we have more people uh, disassociating from church than we do have associating with church. Now, of the um, uh, if if you were to take part in a survey and it were to ask you, um, how do you religiously affiliate? It would most likely give you uh, several different categories, everything from mainline Protestant to Catholic, evangelical, Jewish, Muslim. And then there would be one category that simply says none. And that stands for no religious affiliation. The only category of those that I just named, the only category that is growing is the none, no religious affiliation. And they're commonly referred to as the nuns, and, and not, uh, it's spelled N-O-N-E-S. So we're not talking about Catholic nuns here, uh, but the, the nuns, uh, those who don't, uh, don't claim any religious affiliation are made up of, of those who are atheist, agnostics, and those just claiming no religion. And today that represents over a quarter of the population. And like I said, that is the fastest growing group. Now, uh, I would say, I don't know, I tried to find some statistics on this in Marin County and I couldn't find anything earlier than the early two, uh, more recent than the early 2000s. um when we hear statistics like that it would almost be an improvement in our county uh, to match that statistical reality of of the rest of the united states and so i want us to acknowledge the changing climate of the church in america i know we've got a couple of you that are not in america you're a part of a church across the pond but it's interesting what i have read is that the church in america is headed towards becoming more like the church as it exists right now over in Europe. So we might have some interesting conversations uh, uh, centered around that topic in a little bit. But this morning, I uh, just want us to begin a mini series on the changing climate of the church. The social and cultural climate of the world has changed. Some of that is because of the pandemic. Some of it was just sped up because of the pandemic. Um, social unrest, there's um, political tension, there's just so many things, economic disparity. So how is God's church perceived by the people in our communities? Why has the church all but lost her ability to sway culture? Now, as as Doug said, we're going to resume in-person gatherings on May 2nd, and we'll also maintain our presence on Zoom at the same time. And on May 2nd, as you join us for church, either way, you will be one of between five and 8,000 people in Marin attending church, which is roughly two to 3% of the population of Marin attending church in person or online. So in other words, we as the church are the visiting team. For the foreseeable future, our schedule is filled with away games. We have more people rooting against us than cheering for us. And the secular world is very, very loud, making it difficult for the visiting team. So how do we play well and win on the road? This right now is our opportunity to shape who Bay Marin will be and the scope of our impact as we crawl out of lockdowns and re-engage more face-to-face and in public gathering places over the coming months i believe that the time is ripe for us to be god's church in marin or wherever you call home now this is not the first time that the church has had to consider how to respond in an increasingly secular world Um, so i want to begin by highlighting three ways that the church in america has responded in recent years and then we're going to consider a fourth way after reading a passage from jeremiah Um, so let me kind of touch on these briefly and if um, if you are new to church um, i want to say if you're new to attending um, i just want to say way to go way to way to take that step uh, asking questions and just pursuing uh, jesus in this way Uh, and you are welcome and we are so glad to partner with you on your journey if you have been journeying with god a long time and you have a long history with church then one or more of these three areas will be one uh, that that you can probably relate to um, if you can't relate to any of these three, that's that's great. Uh, maybe in some ways you might be better off, uh, but each of these three ways of um, how the church has attempted to relate to culture and change the world, um, each of these has an, uh, elements that are very, very good. Um, but can we be honest and say, why doesn't the world look a little bit different than it does? Um, I thought the world would be changed more than it is by now. Um, one of, there was a movie uh, 25 years ago, won a bunch of awards. Uh, you may have watched it. It's called Dumb and Dumber, classic movie. Um, there's a scene when Jim Carrey is uh, they're they're doing this cross-country trip to Colorado. And during the night, as he was driving, he got on the highway and started going the wrong way. And the sun comes up, and here he is, he's driving into Kansas, and all he sees is just flat. And he kind of looks out and he goes, hmm, I thought the Rocky Mountains would be a little rockier than this. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, there's another line after it that's not uh, PG, so we can't go there. but. I thought the Rocky Mountains would be a little rockier than this. Um, for 30 years, I've been in ministry, and it's been my heart to be a part of God changing the world. And I got to say, sometimes I look out, and I think, I, I thought the world would be a little more changed than this. And sometimes I, I turn that back on myself and feel a little bit of guilt, like it, have I missed something here? Am I the one that got going the wrong way? Um, Why isn't this world getting better and better instead of what we see so regularly on the news and experience in the world around us? um, Why do we seem to be more broken as a country, more broken as a world? So three primary areas of relating to culture and changing the world. Um, The first one is for the church to take a posture of defensive against. And the three that I'm going to briefly talk about are defensive against, relevant to, and purity from. Defensive against, relevant to, and purity from. So the defensive against, this posture of relating to the world, From the church says that the problem is the lack of religious or spiritual basis. That's the problem in our country. Um, uh, This group would say if America would simply allow God to reign again, if America would simply return to our religious roots, then society in general and institutions like the family and government and education and all of these things would become acceptable to God. Uh, This is a viewpoint that's typically that of fundamentals, mainstream, evangelicals, conservative, Catholics. Um, If you grew up uh, singing How Great Thou Art, it could be possible that not only do you know that song, but maybe you're a little bit familiar with taking this type of a stand, and this is the approach to trying to change the world. Um, The answer that this defensive against group would say church would say is that um that we make these changes in the world by um, calling people to repentance and attacking any viewpoint that contradicts a christian worldview. Uh, this this viewpoint does a lot of looking back in order to gain distinctiveness um, it is uh, highly aware of the differences between church and the secular culture And those differences are oftentimes seen as a threat. Um, They have a very strong desire for theological soundness and for those governing principles. Um, So we have defensive against, we have relevance to, and this posture of relating to the world, um, these type of of churches, this mindset in the church um, desires to remain connected to the current and pressing issues of society. The church's role, according to the relevance to approach, is to remain conscious of the most uh, contentious social issues of the moment. Um, The relevance to type of a church would say, remaining in touch with and connected to contemporary culture, that's the key to changing the world. Be as relevant as possible to the people. Uh, The relevance to, Kind of downplays the differences where um, the defensive against um, sees differences as a threat the church almost looks to uh, downplay those differences between the, the secular world and the church so that the culture hopefully will not see the church as a threat but as a friend um, if you are familiar with the phrase a seeker church this was um, that movement that began um, a couple of decades ago or more, and uh, was really powerful, and it sets out to attract people to attend church by focusing on felt needs, and uh, popular cultural methods of attraction are kind of the, the doorway to introduce people to Christ. If it works for the world, then we're gonna we're going to put a Christian spin on it, and we're going to do it the same way. Third group, purity from. Kind of like the defensive against mindset, the purity from group is committed to Uh, preserving those historically held beliefs and Christian truths. Um, And they believe that Christians are called to holiness and to be distinctly set apart from the world. But the key mindset of purity from is this mindset that the world is no longer redeemable until Christ comes back. So it's almost like their, their mindset would be, since we can't change the world, Let's ensure that we do not allow the world to change us. So the church's goal then is to become a Christian utopia, to, to huddle in, in, in a bubble. It's a, a withdrawn uh, monastic life, they would say, is more the answer. Um, the purity from group sees differences as darkness, and the only answer is to pull back and to become a community of light. So are you still with me on this? (laughs) Sorry, um, uh, we're going to get to some scripture and turn the corner here in just a moment. Hang with me. Each of these three that I just talked about offers very valid points and contribute a lot of good, actually. Um, And to be completely transparent, I have walked down each of these three roads in my 30 plus year spiritual journey we do need to be reminded of the importance of the Bible and not compromise how we are to live. We do need to incarnate and understand the culture around us. And we do need to live as holy people, set apart from the world and to God. And yet there is a fourth way. And before I talk about that, I wanna read uh, from the Old Testament, uh, this writing by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29. And I'm gonna start off in, in verse four Of Jeremiah 29 and I'll read through verse 11. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies the God of Israel says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you Do not listen to their dreams, because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. This fourth way, um, we will refer to it as being a faithful presence within. The fourth way is to be a faithful presence within. Faithful presence is recognizing the social sphere in which one resides. Um, It is, like what Doug was saying just a few moments ago, it is being fully aware of these unique and beautifully God-created people who cross your path, recognizing those people and being fully present and committed to them in that place. Faithful presence is committing to do what we can within that social sphere that contributes to the flourishing of everyone. The flourishing is not limited to only those in the church, but also to those who do not believe in or trust their lives to Christ. It it, it involves coming against social oppression and injustice, and also promoting harmony, wholeness, well-being, goodness, truth, and beauty. Now, let me give you some context of that passage in Jeremiah 29, and that will really make... uh, what is said there, I think, really pop. In 586 BC, the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, um, the leader of Babylon, conquered Jerusalem. He confiscated uh, the wealth from the temple in Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple, and he took the vast majority of the Jews living there at the time as slaves. He took their leadership, the kings, the priests, the local officials, uh, the skilled craftsmen. He took them back to Babylon, which is, probably about a thousand mile journey. As the crow flies, it was 500 miles, but they probably didn't go that way because that would mean they would have to cross the Arabian desert. So probably went up and around, but took them a thousand miles away from their home. And then in Babylon, there arose some prominent figures in the Israelite community who was exiled there. Um, Some of these prominent figures prophesied um, it just in a real positive way, hey, our captivity is only going to last at most two years, and then we're going to be delivered. Uh, then we're going to return to our homeland and restore the temple. And so naturally, the people were really glad to hear that. They're like, okay, well, we can, we can endure this for a couple of years, and then God's going to get us out of this. But then they grew confused when it didn't come true. And this is the part of the text where we just read that was written by Jeremiah, who was among us a small remnant that still lived in Jerusalem. And he writes this letter to those who are exiled in Babylon. And the premise of Jeremiah's message was that the exiles would be in Babylon for several generations, at least 70 years. And Jeremiah was saying, um, this is not the time to be nostalgic for the past, because we're not going to be able to recover the past. Jeremiah um, did not advise them to plan for an insurrection or a takeover of Babylon. Nor did Jeremiah encourage the community to survive by um, just, well, we've got these people back in Jerusalem. Those of you that are in exile, there's no hope. Maybe this, this little remnant will do it. Jeremiah wrote to these people to explain that exile did not mean that God had abandoned Israel. Rather, exile was the place where God was at work and God's purposes with Israel had not changed. Let me kind of rephrase that a little bit. God was at work with the visiting team and God's purposes did not change just because his team, his people, we're playing all-away games. Jeremiah instructs the Jews in exile to seek the welfare of their captors. Can you imagine that? To pray for the very people who destroyed their homeland and everything that they held dear. Jeremiah was saying that the welfare of the Babylonians was actually tied to the welfare of their own lives in captivity. Now, Without a doubt, it would have been justifiable for the Jews to have a defensive against or hostile approach to their captors. It would have been natural enough for them to withdraw um, and to seek that purity from kind of model. And it certainly would have been easy for them to just simply assimilate with, uh, to become so relevant with the culture that they just kind of disappeared. But God was calling them to something different. And this is the fourth way rather than being defensive against isolated from or absorbed into the dominant culture god invited israel to be faithfully present within it now, on the face this was on the face of it this was not a posture of radically challenging the powers that be but it wasn't neither was it a, a passive acceptance of establishing that the way Uh, the way things were in Babylon is the way that things had to always be. The people of Israel were being called to enter the culture in which they were placed as God's people, reflecting in their daily practices, their distinct identity as those chosen by God. He was calling them to maintain their distinctiveness as a community, but in ways that served the common good. Jeremiah 29 11 is often quoted in Christian circles, um, but I hope we have a, a clearer understanding of the context. Jeremiah 29 11 says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for good and not disaster to give you a future and a hope. The plans God had for them were not deliverance from difficulties and challenges, but rather for his people to live faithfully present to him and to others, including their captors. Their fulfilling future and stirring hope was not a someday, somewhere promise for later. It was a promise for this day and this place. And although they were the visiting team and had a schedule of only away games, God had good plans in store. And not only good for them as Israel, but for the good of the godless nation around them. God was present to them and at work with them in the context of exile. And in that context, faithfulness meant being a blessing to the world in which they were placed. The people of God for today, we as the people of God are to be committed to live for the welfare, for the good of the cities in which we reside as visitors, as, as Peter describes it as aliens, as those who are exiled. Even when the city is indifferent, hostile, or ungrateful for our choice to pursue Christ, um, we recognize that God has placed us to actively seek the good of our community on behalf of others. And I believe this is a vision for the entire church, Big C Church. In all tasks that we undertake, in all vocations, and in all walks of life, with whatever resources are available to us, we commit to everyone flourishing, even in a very secular and pluralistic world. So can, can Christians change the world? It's an interesting question um maybe your first response is well christians don't change the world god changes the world and maybe he's going to do that through the church but can can we really change the world and i believe that's the wrong question Uh, when we attempt to change the world we run the danger of using god as a tool to achieve that objective if that makes sense Um, christianity is not, first and foremost, about establishing right ways of living or creating good values or securing justice or making peace in the world. Don't get me wrong. Those are very good and we should care about and pursue these things with great passion. But for those of us who follow Christ, all of those things are secondary to the primary task of worshiping God and honoring him in all we do as we live faithfully present to him then we are able to be faithfully present to others christians at our best we will not be able to create a perfect world bring in something that is altogether new because that is for god alone to do But by engaging in the practice of faithful presence, it's possible, just possible, that we will help make the world a better place. It's possible that even as a visiting team playing on the road, our faithful presence will result in something that causes us to echo the words of Psalm 118. I read this this morning. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. I wanna be a part of something that only the Lord can do. I don't wanna miss out, that's my FOMO, that God's gonna do something amazing and I missed it. I want us to be faithfully present to God and faithfully present to the people around us and then step back and invite God to do something that leaves us in awe not of a changed world, but in awe of the God who is redeeming that world. So here's, here's what I would ask you to do between now and next, next time we gather next week. Take time this week to reflect on the people in your circle, in your sphere of influence. Kind of what, what Doug was saying, there are people coming into your life, could be people you live with, um, family, roommates, it could be co-workers, um, it could be acquaintances, it could be the bartender or the barista that you have seen regularly and you're just getting to know their name. Who are the people in your sphere of influence? And next week, what I want us to do is, is to take a more detailed look at what it means for us to be a faithful presence in those circles of influence. Tangibly, we're going to put some some meat on the bones, because uh, I realize that there's still kind of a nebulous nature to uh, to this. How do we live faithfully present? And so we're going to begin next week um, by looking at how God is faithfully present to us, and then what it means for us to embody that same faithful presence within our circles of influence. And then the week after that, April 25th, we're going to look at uh, what it looks like to be faithfully present to the earth. Many of you probably know April 22nd is Earth Day, so just a few days after that, April 25th, we're going to look at how we, um, as God's people, can respond to this mandate that he gave us in Genesis 2, and how we can be faithfully present in caring for the earth. Jesus gave us a great example in so many ways, but specifically, I want you to reflect on how Jesus was faithfully present to his Father as he walked on this earth. And I'm, uh, and if you have communion elements, I want us to get, get those ready at this time. Jesus was faithfully present to God the Father, and he was faithfully present to each and every person who crossed his path. The life of Jesus teaches us that the greatest power in all the world is loving sacrifice. The greatest power in all the world is loving sacrifice. Nothing has the power to change lives as does loving sacrifice. And our faithful presence in the world would be summed up in the same way. Loving acts of sacrifice for the good of others. It's what Jesus did every day that he walked this earth. And then he called his disciples together for a special meal. And he gave us a, a, a powerful symbol to remind us of, of life-changing, uh, the, the potential of life-changing actions as a result of loving sacrifice. And he took the bread and the cup and he made a reference to how the bread is, represents his body that he offered for them, that he was about to offer to them and the cup representing his blood that he would shed for the atonement of their sins. So would you just take a brief moment before we partake and would you thank him for being fully present to you right now? He has remained faithfully present to you all throughout your life. You may not have been aware of it most of the time, but he was faithfully present to you. And his sacrificial love is a gift to you. And if you will, take the elements with me. And Jesus said to his closest friends, and he says to you and I, this represents my body offered for you in loving sacrifice. And after their meal, at the end of their meal, he held up a cup of wine. And he said, this is a symbol of the atoning work that my blood will do for you, an example of sacrificial love. I don't, I don't often read the message, uh, paraphrase of the Bible, um, but I do, when I do read it, it always makes some passages that uh, just feel so fresh. And it was about 20 years ago uh, that I remember reading specifically Psalm 64, verses nine and 10 in the message. And I was like, this is what I wanna be a part of. This is who God has called the church to be, and the type of changes that he's called us to. So I just want to leave us with this verse, and then, um, then we'll unmute the mics, and we'll enjoy the after party. But uh, Psalm 64, 9 and 10, in the message translation says, Everyone sees it. God's work is the talk of the town. Be glad, good people, fly to God, good-hearted people, make praise your habit. May God's work be the talk of this town, San Rafael. May God's work be the talk of your town, wherever you are, Arizona, Oklahoma, um, across the pond, wherever you are. May God's work be the talk of the town and may people see God as a result. Amen.